presentation of Idaho Reports on Idaho Public Television is made possible through the generous support of the Laura Moore Cunningham Foundation, committed to fulfilling the Moore and Bettis family legacy of building the great state of Idaho. By the Friends of Idaho Public Television and by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Week two of the legislature kicked off with the budget committee approving billions of dollars in spending. Tonight, we'll talk about that flood of appropriations and the real flood risk to Idaho communities. I'm Melissa Davlin. Idaho Reports starts now. Hello and welcome to Idaho Reports. This week we hear results from the ninth annual Boise State University Public Policy Survey. Then Kevin Richard of Idaho Education News joins me to discuss the week that was. But first, no matter where you are in Idaho, you likely got hit by winter storms this week. But how do those storms affect Idaho's snowpack and what can we expect for the coming year? David Hokema, chair of the Idaho Water Supply Committee, joins me to discuss the statewide outlook. David, thank you so much for joining us today. So what what is the snowpack like statewide right now? Well, a lot of people, uh, Melissa, have, especially in this valley, got hit hard by snow and we're seeing school closures. You know, a lot of th things are impacting us because of the depth of snow and the snow in Boise has already exceeded what's normal for the year. But that's not the case as you go northward up into McCall. I was up in McCall this weekend for some skiing and they, the snow there is really low compared to what it, what it typically is. Um, part of that is because we started off with a really abnormally warm winter, um, especially the month of December. Um, and so we had the warmth, it was also pretty dry in, in December. Um, and when you're warm and dry, it's really hard to build snow. Um, and when these storms came in, they hit mostly to the south. So right now, all the basins along the Idaho, Idaho southern border are loaded with snow. They're over 100% of normal. Some of them are already up to 70 or more percentage of the typical annual peak, um, which the typical snow peaks around April 1st. So if in January, you're already 75, 80% of the way there, that's pretty spectacular, but when you go North of us, um, we're looking at maybe 30% of the typical peak snowpack. When you say north of us, you're talking northern Idaho. Yeah, northern Idaho from where we're at here all the way up to the border. Um, we're looking at 70% of normal for this time of year in, in the Boise Basin. And that corresponds to 48% uh, of the typical peak. So we've got about half of our snow that we need so far for the year. So we've got another half to go, but we're, we're not keeping up with climatology at this point. We've been catching up, mm -hmm. but we're, we're, we still have a little ways to go. We've got at least another inch of water in the snowpack we need, which is about equivalent to another foot um, to get back to a normal snowpack. And our probability of getting there is about a 30% probability at this point. Um, but w the good news is we don't need to get all the way up to a normal snowpack this year c because of reservoir conditions in the Boise. But as you progress further north into northern Idaho, they were, were coming out of drought last year. They have really low base flows and the snowpack is even lower up there. It's in the 30% of maybe approaching peak 
And so on the Clearwater Basin, they just came out of record-breaking low snowpack, um, but they only have maybe a 10% probability of getting a normal snowpack. And there they really need that snow because they've got the low base flows, they got the drought from last year. So it really varies yep. depending on where you are region by region. Yep. You know, looking forward, especially when we're talking about North Idaho, uh, is it possible for them to be able to make up that ground this year and get out of that drought that they're in and get to no normal or close to normal snowpack levels? Yeah, the chances are about 10%, like I was saying, in the Clearwater Basin. It's a little higher um, at the border but the probability is pretty low of them coming out of drought, especially this being a strong El Nino year. And there's a pretty str strong signal, relatively speaking, with El Nino in northern Idaho that, tends, that tends toward right? drought. So El Ninos tend to be drought in northern Idaho. They tend to be really wet in the south western United States, and sometimes that impacts southern Idaho as well. So we don't have an El Nino signal in southern Idaho. When we're talking about drought in southern Idaho, Magic Valley, we're talking about a lot of times the impacts on ag and the reservoir levels. Yeah. When we're talking about drought in north Idaho where there's more forest, what, for, for those who aren't familiar, what are the impacts of drought in a forested area of the state? In a forested area, it can be um, fire, fire danger, um, also, hydropower generation gets impacted when you have less water in the river. How about flood risk? You, t you talked a, a lot about the north part of the state and the southern part of the state. We've experienced flooding in mm -hmm. the last 10 years. Can we expect flooding in the southern part of the state after now that we're warming up? You know, especially along the southern border, those basins like the Portnoff River going into Pocatello, um, last year, they had really high um, flows. Um, they had some flooding there, and so the base flows there right now are really high, and they've got a high snowpack. So along the southern border of Idaho, those basins coming out of that area, yes, I would say there's a significant possibility of flood risk there. On the Snake River itself, there probably will be flood control operations, but the flood risk is not that high. Um, on, on the main stem of the river now. Now we could get a whole bunch of a large atmospheric river system coming in that hits the upper snake system and the flood control you know, issues would go way up. But at this point we're not seeing a large flooding risk from basically the Snake River Plain northward, but mm -hmm. south of the Snake River Plain definitely. All right, we'll be in wait and see mode then. David yep. Hokema, chairman of the Idaho Water, si Water Supply Committee, thank you so much for joining us. Yep, you're welcome. Back at the State House, the Joint Finance Appropriations Committee kicked off the week by passing maintenance budgets for state agencies, voting on about $12 billion in one day. Idaho Reports has been following changes to the budget setting committee, including passing maintenance budgets at the beginning of the session, then considering additional requests for agencies individually. Historically, the committee has passed agency budgets in their entireties in the second half of the session. Associate producer Logan Finney has more online on those changes including concerns from Democrats who oppose the move. You'll find the link at IdahoReports.org. Also Monday, the House State Affairs Committee heard testimony on a bill that would allow parents to collect damages from libraries if those libraries allow their children to check out material deemed obscene. The bill would also allow 
would also have allowed patrons to request libraries to move materials from youth to adult-only sections. The bill was similar to one that Governor Brad Little vetoed in 2023, though it reduces those civil damages from $2,500 to $250. We're not talking about Huckleberry Finn. We're not talking about To Kill a Mockingbird. We're not talking about the Bible, as some have suggested. We're talking really about a few dozen books uh, many of which are graphic novels in both senses of the word that include extremely vulgar and pornographic imagery. Representatives, the homophobia in this bill is blatant. This bill's definition of sexual conduct is incorrect and does not align with widely accepted definitions in any popular dictionary. Homosexuality does not equate to obscenity. It is your choice to sexualize children's books. I think the practical part of implementing this bill is problematic. I work in Idle Falls Public Library. We're one of the largest libraries in Eastern Idaho. We can't afford to do this. We cannot afford to have a separate area for just adults. We have a ramp that goes up to the third floor where the adult materials are. We have an elevator that's not in sight of any staff members that people that are dis disabled can use. So our solution, if, if this were to pass in its current form, is to bar anyone under 18 from the top floor of the library. Most who testified were against that bill, though the committee voted to advance it on party lines. But on Thursday, the bill sponsor pulled the legislation, saying he's working on a compromise bill with the Senate. We'll continue following the story throughout the session. The House Health and Welfare Committee voted this week to introduce a bill that would reestablish the Maternal Mortality Review Committee, this time under the Board of Medicine instead of a standalone entity. Last year, the legislature didn't vote to renew that committee, making Idaho the only state without a maternal mortality review panel. Chief Justice Richard Bevan gave the state of the judiciary on Wednesday, asking lawmakers to support funding for court technology, saying the current funding model through court filings and fees isn't working. Bevan also noted that between an increase in threats to judges and low pay compared to the private sector, judicial recruitment is difficult. In 2022, we averaged just five applicants for each of our district court openings, a number I previously described to you as inadequate and one which is almost a 50% decrease from just seven years ago. Last year, that average dropped below five, and for openings in our sixth and first judicial districts, only three attorneys applied, the minimum number that the Idaho Judicial Council is now required to provide the governor for his selection. To watch the full state of the judiciary, head to youtube.com slash Idaho Reports or hear highlights on the Idaho Reports podcast. You can listen wherever you find your podcasts. On Friday, lawmakers heard testimony on a bill that would establish a mandatory minimum sentence for fentanyl trafficking. The committee will vote on that bill at a later date. The bill's journey through committee brought up another issue, though. Sometimes the legislature fast tracks bills. The committee introduced the bill on Wednesday and the bill text didn't go online until Thursday, meaning the public had almost no time to review the legislation or schedule time to come testify. The abbreviated process drew criticism from the Mountain State's Policy Center. In December, we discussed the center's recommendation that the legislature have a three day notice before a public hearing on legislation. You can find our archived episodes at Idaho. PTV.org slash Idaho reports. 
In other justice news on Friday, the Idaho Commission on Pardons and Parole held a commutation hearing for Thomas Creech, Idaho's longest serving death row inmate. In October, an Ada County judge issued a death warrant for Creech, who has been on death row for more than 40 years. The request for a commutation delayed the execution. Idaho Reports producer Ruth Brown was the pool reporter for the hearing. For her coverage, visit IdahoReports.org. We know what's on lawmakers' minds, but what about the average Idahoan? This week, Boise State University released the results of, it, of its ninth annual public policy survey. I sat down with Dr. Matthew May and Lance McGinnis-Brown of the Idaho Policy Institute to discuss what Idahoans are saying. Thank you both so much for joining us today. Dr. May, I'll start with you. You surveyed about 1,000 people representing every county in the state. What was your overall takeaway? Uh, I think the main takeaway from the survey this year is that for the first time in our survey's history, uh, more Idahoans feel that the state is off on the wrong track rather than headed in the right direction. Um, this is the first time in the nine years of our survey and even going so back so far as 1998 um, with our uh, school's predecessor survey, this is the first time the negative response has been the, the top response, which indicates to us that Idahoans have a lot of concern about the overall direction. Did that vary based on who you were talking to? It, it did. Uh, Republicans generally had a more positive uh, conception of the state's direction. Democrats had a pessimistic um, perception, so did independents. Um, and newcomers also were generally more positive about the overall direction of the state. Longtime residents who are seeing this growth come in were generally more pessimistic. Oh, that's interesting. Uh, Lance, I wanted to ask you about legislative priorities that Idahoans have. What do Idahoans want their lawmakers to be doing while they're in Boise for the next three months? Yeah, so we ask two separate versions of this question, essentially. We ask overall legislative priorities, and on that list, education tops out, as it has many years in a row, uh, followed by, sorry, Matthew, I'm forgetting budget priorities. Followed by budget priorities and then housing has come in third and housing has been rising over the years. And those priorities are pretty similar across parties. Well, when we're talking about education, what specifically are people concerned about? Is it funding? Is it quality? School choice? What's on their mind? Yeah, this time around, if somebody said, we ask folks what they think about the quality of Idaho's K-12 education system. And if somebody said fair or poor, this time around we asked why and largely the responses re uh, revolved around educational quality, uh, quality of teachers, teacher support, and... Uh, Academic quality and teacher support, and then a pro policy and programmatic changes. And policy and programmatic changes, sorry. <laughs> no worries at all. We talked about library bills earlier in the show. This is the third session in a row that we are talking about how libraries deal with materials that might mm -hmm. not be appropriate for children. Uh, where are Idahoans on this, Dr. May? Generally, so we asked whether Idahoans trust public libraries and librarians to make the decisions about what books are offered and available in them. Um, when we combine those that have a lot of trust or some trust, um, over 60% of Idahoans say that they trust the libraries and librarians to make those decisions. Uh, even even when we break this out by party, it's over 60% regardless of uh, party identification. Now the one thing that uh, we will say is that the Republican support is generally a little bit softer in that only about 28% said that they have a lot of trust compared to 40% of independents or 58% uh, of Democrats um, suggesting that Republicans are the ones that generally have more concerns, but still trust is kind of high across the board. Probably not a surprise there. Um, you know, speaking of Republicans, the uh, presidential caucus is coming up in less than two months. 
You asked Idahoans how they feel about primary versus caucuses. Where, what, what did you hear from them? Overwhelmingly, Idahoans say that they prefer to have a primary over a caucus. About 74% of Idahoans said that they would prefer a primary. Um, and then when we uh, followed up that question by asking, would you prefer that these be held on the same day or on separate days to try to get at that March primary versus May primary issue, um, again, a similar majority of Idahoans, about 74%, said that they would prefer them to be held on the same day. So Idahoans favor a primary, and they favor it being held on the same day as state primaries. Did that vary based on whether you were talking to a Republican or an independent or a Democrat? Very little. Um, across the board, um, all party identifications favored a primary and uh, holding elections on the same day. Uh, I think Democrats were the highest on a primary. Republicans were second highest on a primary. Republicans were the highest on the same day and uh, followed by uh, Democrats and independents. You also asked about uh, top four primary versus ranked choice voting versus our current system. Mm -hmm. uh, what did Idahoans tell you? So we took pains to explain to them exactly how a top four primary system would work and a ranked choice uh, ballot system would work and then asked them whether they would favor or oppose such a system. Uh, a majority of Idahoans said that they would favor a top four system. Um, a majority of Idahoans said that they would oppose a ranked choice system. Um, the ballot initiative currently under consideration would kind of implement both of these together. And when we looked at the two questions to see which or what proportion of Idahoans favored both, that was about 29%. Um, about 6% favored just the ranked choice system, uh, about 29% favored just a top four system, and about 23% opposed both systems. Did you ask specifically about the, uh, the ballot initiative that is being circulated right now, though? Uh, we didn't ask specifically about the ballot initiative. We kind of separated out the the proportion that would or the portion that would affect the May primary and the portion that would affect the general election. So that's the top four system in May and then the ranked choice system in November. And we wanted to see if Idahoans um, felt differently about the different components. And our results suggest that yes, they they do at least currently. Lance, one of the policy considerations that Idahoans want lawmakers uh, to talk about is, is housing. What specifically did you hear when it came to housing? Yeah, we asked a pretty good battery of housing questions this time around. We asked folks if housing has presented some kind of financial strain for themselves or their households. And overall, a little bit more than half of Idahoans said that yes, housing has put some kind of financial strain on their households. And that number rises to more than 70% among renters. And when we also asked even to an increasing degree if folks have had to move out of their housing due to financial strains, 9% uh, overall said that they had had to move out and that number boosts to almost a fifth of renters overall. So very different viewpoints based on whether you're talking to an Idahoan who's a homeowner versus whether they're renting. Did you yes. see that in any other questions, that renter versus homeowner divide? Um, one, one thing we also saw is that younger Idahoans are more likely to be housing insecure, and that may also tie to that, that renter divide more younger Idahoans rent than those over 45. I'd also just add there that renters were also 15 points more likely to think the state was headed in the wrong direction than um, homeowners. How about abortion? You asked, mm -hmm. you asked survey respondents how they felt about the current law. What did you hear? 
Uh, about a third of Idahoans say that they favor the status quo and keeping Idaho's law as is, which bans it after six weeks with very few exceptions. Uh, about 58 percent. Total ban. Total ban, at this yes. point. Mm -hmm. And so about 58 percent say they favor changing ex Idaho's existing law, but they disagree on exactly how far or what those changes should be. Uh, I think it was about a quarter favor expanding exceptions to include the health of the mother and non-viable pregnancies. Um, then I believe it was another 20-some um, percent that favor uh, expanding exceptions up through the third trimester, and then about 19 percent favor no restrictions of any kind. So there is a majority that wants to see change, but they're just not in full agreement on how extensive those changes should be. We have about 30 seconds left. Uh, Friday saw a lengthy hearing on mandatory minimums for fentanyl trafficking. You asked about mandatory minimums for uh, drug-related offenses. What did you hear? Uh, about 48% of Idahoans say that they would favor mandatory minimum sentences in some cases, drug cases like fentanyl and heroin. Um, less say that they would favor it in all cases or no mandatory minimums at all. So there does seem to be large support for at least mandatory minimums in certain cases. All right, Dr. Matthew May, Lance McGinnis-Brown, Idaho Policy Institute, thank you both so much for joining me. Thank you for having us. We have the link to that survey on our website, idahoreports.org, here to discuss that and so much more in education is Kevin Richard of Idaho Education News. Kevin, you were at the press conference where the Idaho Policy Institute researchers unveiled their findings. Mm -hmm. What stood out to you? I was really surprised by the support and the interest in trying to address workplace housing and affordable housing. I mean, you had respondents say that this is the top funding priority that they see in the 2024 legislative session, even as respondents said, as they have for years, that they consider education to be the most important issue in the state. I was really surprised by that. Yeah, absolutely. They also, I, I'll note, and we, we talked about this with, with Dr. May, the library bills, people generally trust their librarians to steer children toward appropriate material. Very strong support for librarians and the work that they do. And it'll be interesting to see how that survey response informs or doesn't inform the, the debate that we're going to see about library bills that is really the debate just beginning. Well, let's chat about that a little bit yes. because this is this is session number three where we are talking about libraries and content that is uh, appropriate for children and what to do about it. Um, we know that the bills that have already been introduced aren't going anywhere. We know there's a compromise that is in the works. Where might that debate go? I'm going to be very interested to see what that compromise bill turns out to be, if indeed there turns out to be a compromise bill, because the two bills that we've seen so far on school libraries especially, very different emphasis. Jaron Crane, as he did last year, is really focused on content. He's really And he's focused, the House sponsor. He's the House sponsor. He's the sponsor of House Bill 384. That's the bill that passed out of House State Affairs earlier this week, despite a lot of testimony in opposition. Jaron Crane's bill focuses on content. It focuses on harmful materials. That's the phrase that gets all the people very excited about this bill. The bill that we saw on the Senate side, which uh, evidently is going nowhere, focused much more on process. It focused much more on how do school libraries deal with questions about content. And it calls for creating committees to deal with content. It addresses the process of how do you address an objection from a parent or, or a student. Much more focused on process than material. So. Do you put together a bill that addresses both and combines elements of both, or do the, the various uh, 
sides in this debate, do they not find a compromise? I'm going to be interested to see what they come up with. I'll be interested to see how it, uh, how it plays with the Idaho Library Association, which right now is kind of noncommittal. Uh, a lot to see. But the difference, you mentioned, third year of this debate. The first two years, though, this was the last bill the legislature dealt with. This year, it's one of the first bills they're dealing with. So at least they're taking their time anyway. That tells me that lawmakers are, Republican lawmakers who support this are very serious about getting some version of this through. They, they want to get something done, that much is clear. Yeah, and I'm curious about the subjectivity questions about what constitutes harmful material. So, mm -hmm. exactly. as, as always, we'll keep following this. Yeah. Uh, other news in the legislature this week, uh, your colleague Ryan Supi at, uh, at Idaho Education News wrote about the Blaine Amendment. Can you talk a little bit about what that is and why it matters to lawmakers so much? First of all, what Ryan did was some great reporting and really goes back to the history of the Blaine Amendment, which is a part of our original constitution, something I didn't realize until I read his story. Uh, the Blaine Amendment, in a nutshell, is a constitutional prohibition against using public dollars to support religious enterprises, including religious schools. Almost, uh, I want to say about three dozen states in the union have very similar amendments in their constitution. There have been moves to try to repeal that amendment for years. We've had a, a constitutional amendment already introduced in the legislature this year that would aim for repeal. It's tough to repeal something because, again, you need two-thirds support in both houses, then it needs to go to voters, so it's an uphill battle. But it all ties into this debate about uh, school choice, for lack of a better term, about putting money into education savings accounts or tax credits or whatever vehicle you want to use to try to get public dollars into private education. And, uh, and this is, you know, decades of this conversation. You know, you mentioned that Ryan wrote that this was in the original Constitution. In Idaho specifically, this is not a new debate. It's not a new debate. And going back to the Boise State Survey, one of the things I thought was really interesting about the Boise State Survey, they asked a, a question about the idea of whether you, whether voters support the idea of moving public dollars into private education. Pretty close split, slightly, slightly in favor. Uh, but not by a, a great majority or, or anything like that, and differences along party lines, and differences when the researchers asked, how do you feel about the, this kind of a move if it compromises public school funding? Then you get a different response. So a, a deep split within the electorate about this issue. Absolutely, and well, and a deep split too within the Republican Party. This yes, isn't just yes. a partisan issue. There yeah. are different sides, even among conservatives. Well, and different, different perspectives between the Senate Education Committee and the House Education Committee, both overwhelmingly Republican, very different views about these uh, types of uh, bills. We've got about two minutes left. Can you update us on uh, empowering parents and what the governor's recommending for the program? This was one of the surprises of the week. Uh, Alex Adams, uh, the governor's budget guy, uh, spoke to the Joint Finance Appropriations Committee uh, earlier this week and said, if the legislature, if JFAC specifically, goes along with a more conservative revenue estimate, one of the ways uh, they're recommending trying to fit the budget under that more conservative revenue estimate is to get rid of empowering parents. Now, and empowering parents is a grant program to address learning loss and, and helping students with, helping families with learning costs right, yes, it's a $30 million a year micro-grant program that, that puts money into families' hands to pay for a laptop or pay for better internet access or whatever they feel like they need at home. This has been one of Governor Little's pet education projects for several years in, in different iterations. It was only in December, right before Christmas, that uh, the governor released an 
independent audit of the first year of Empowering Parents, which had some problems uh, in the first year. Uh, the audit was generally clean. It, it kind of downplayed the number of uh, errors and uh, improper purchases. And at that time, Governor Little declared the program a resounding success. That's a month ago. Now it's on the chopping block. It's a very interesting turn of events. No, oh, it's interesting, you know, and, and disclosure, I have a student who benefited from empowering parents and, and received a grant. And the families I talked to who have received empowering parent grants, it was it was a pretty popular program. It is continues to be a pretty right, popular and program. they're getting thousands of applications uh, on this next cycle of empowering parents right now. Any indication what else uh, education related might be on the chopping block? We have about thirty seconds left. Right now, that seems to be the issue that is most in in jeopardy. But you know, long legislative session to go, and and you know, we don't know what's going to happen with Idaho launch. We know there's going to be a scrutiny over that. We haven't even seen the first contours of what a school facilities bill or a school facilities proposal might look look like. I mean, it was just barely, you know, less than two weeks ago that we were hearing about this $200 million a year proposal from the governor. Yeah, lots to keep an eye on. Kevin Richard, Idaho Education News, thanks for joining us. And thank you for watching. We'll see you right back here next week. presentation of Idaho Reports on Idaho Public Television is made possible through the generous support of the Laura Moore Cunningham Foundation, committed to fulfilling the Moore and Bettis family legacy of building the great state of Idaho. By the Friends of Idaho Public Television and by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting.